Well, we're in the grand finale of our first ever sermon series as a church. Um, I'm sure you guys are just excited about that. We didn't have any confetti or anything to let loose from the ceiling. Um, but here we are seven weeks in uh, to being a church plant that's meeting together. And um, it's been a, a blessing in a million different ways. I'm excited to finish this series of chapters two and three of Revelation as we talk about Laodicea. Um, and really the topic that we see today um, is this topic about Jesus leaving a church. That's really what we're discussing today, is this question of what makes Jesus absent from a church. Now, as we go into Laodicea, as we read this passage, um, Laodicea might be a new uh, city name to you, but it's actually not the first time in the Bible that the, the church in Laodicea is mentioned. Um, Laodicea was about six miles south I believe, of Colossae. So whenever the letter of Colossae was written, as we know the book of Colossians, you'll find at the very end of it that the Apostle Paul says, when you finish reading this in Colossae, I want you to take it to Laodicea and have it read there. So this is actually not even the first time that Laodicea has had scripture like written to it for them to understand. This is not an out-of-the-way city. It's not a, um, an obscure city. It's a pretty wealthy city. It's actually a really well-known city. Um, for a lot of different reasons. The three primary ones is that they actually were a banking center in the ancient uh, Middle East. So they were a wealthy city. Uh, they also were, had an industry of like clothes and fine goods like that. Not to mention they were known for optometry. You might not expect that of an ancient city. But they were thought to have all kinds of medical knowledge and especially stuff about eyesight. And so those things all together means that this city was well known. This city was pretty rich. As a matter of fact, um, Laodicea and Philadelphia both got destroyed by an earthquake, and Philadelphia, in order to rebuild itself, accepted help from the Roman uh, government. Laodicea, on the other hand, was totally fine on their own. So Laodicea didn't accept a dime of help from the Romans. They rebuilt their city from the ground up using their own wealth And you can tell through all these things that Laodicea is a pretty uh, self-reliant and self-sufficient people. They are um, well-to-do, right? As we talked about earlier on in this series, some of these churches are a little more out of the way. Uh, They're a little more blue-collar. That is not what's going on in Laodicea. People here um, are people of means for the most part. Now, I want, to, I want us to keep all this in mind as we read through this passage. We're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14, and we'll make our way through this passage together. Um, if you're um, able, I'd love for you to stand with us as we stand out of reverence for God's Word, as we read it together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and, he, and eat with him, and he will eat with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Father God, as we gather around your word, we remember that the flower fades and the grass withers, but your word alone remains forever. And so we pray that as we open it up, as we read it, Lord, as we study it, that we would have um, hearts that can understand it, hearts that receive it in faith um, and enjoy for the good treasure that is found in your word. We pray, like the psalmist, that you would open our eyes to see more and more wonderful things in your law. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this letter, I want you to imagine for a second that you are the church of Laodicea. That's where we're sitting this morning or this afternoon. And so as they're gathered for worship, and, and you have to remember that this scripture, right, when they heard it for the first time, it wasn't them reading it on a page. This was spoken to them, right? This was delivered to, um, from John to their pastor, he brought it to their church, and he read this letter, the whole letter, the book of Revelation, to them. And so this church, Laodicea, has read the intro to Revelation, or they heard it read, and then they heard all these other churches get addressed, and then they realize, oh boy, we're going to be last. And then they hear how some of these churches, like Thyatira, Pergamum, they get encouraged about some things, corrected about others. They get to um, Sardis, and they hear Sardis just get utterly destroyed and rebuked by Christ with almost nothing good to say. They see, or they hear Philadelphia um, get just encouraged, right? Remember last week, Philadelphia only received encouragement. So I think that the church in Laodicea was ready to get a pat on the back like Philadelphia was. Instead, imagine this being read to you for the very first time. And not just being read to you, but being read about you. Instead of Jesus saying, hey, I know your works and you're doing great. He says um, fairly quickly that they are so distasteful to him that he is going to spit them out of his mouth. It's not exactly like... That's not exactly the Christmas cards that all of you are about to send out to loved ones and relatives and everything like that. The biography that Jesus gives for this church is way worse than the autobiography that this church would write for themselves. You see, this church is told that even though they think that they are fine, they're prospering, and they don't have any needs, in reality, they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There's nothing that is spoken of this church. They're probably waiting for, but you have this, right? They're waiting for a but somewhere in this letter, and it never comes. And Jesus uses several examples to really drive this point home. Um, If you've been around church for any length of time, I'm pretty confident that you've heard the expression of like hot, cold, and lukewarm. And I'm pretty sure that you've you've probably heard it taught in a way that I I think is a little bit off the mark. Um, And so we're going to look at this in a different way. Um, In order to understand why Jesus brings this up, um, you have to understand a little bit of the geography of where this city sits. Remember, it's really close to Colossae, and Colossae was known for having really good natural drinking water. So this city, Colossae, is about 12 miles away. They have really cold, really great um, drinking water from mountains in their area. 
Now, on the other side of uh, Laodicea, there's a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known, it was six miles away. And Hierapolis was known for these hot springs that gave this hot water that was good to drink, but also thought had these medicinal properties. And so Laodicea has all this stuff. It has banking. It has all these industries. The one thing Laodicea does not have as a city is water. They have no water in Laodicea, none that anyone wants to drink. And so they actually get their water from Hierapolis. They bring it in on an aqueduct, which means, if you're following along, whenever you get hot water from the source, and then you have to run it 12 or 6 miles in the ancient world where you can't insulate the pipes and everything like that, it's going to get to Laodicea no longer hot, right? It's going to get there pretty room temperature. So this church is told that they are a whole lot like the water of their city. All right, God is not telling them, and he's not telling you, that he prefers um, neutral people, or that he prefers cold and hateful people towards him instead of neutral people. I've been in a lot, I've, I've been in a lot of contexts where the, the thrust of this has been like, God wants you to be on fire all the time for him, so you better emotionally feel a drive all the time. Like, you better, you, know, you better feel that emotional heat to follow Christ. That's not what's coming across here. Um, it's not as though God just wants emotional rushes from us in order to be a faithful follower. What he's trying to get to, the, the point here that he's trying to get to is the fact that Colossae has water that's good for something, and Hierapolis has water that's good for something, Laodicea has water that's good for nothing. Meanwhile, this church thinks it's good for something, and it's good for nothing. That's what's being taught to this church in uh, Laodicea. See, this church apparently seems to think that they have it going on. You can hear it in the words that Jesus gives to them. He says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. You can hear Laodicea pointing to how great their preaching is on Sundays and how fantastic their music is and all the, the great buildings that they've built and all the places that they do ministry and just how well they're thriving. You can hear Laodicea pointing to all these things. You know that they are sitting around thinking that they know how it's done. Right? This church is confident of the fact that they have figured Christianity out, they've figured ministry out, they've figured the gospel out, they've got it all figured out. And Jesus wants them desperately to see their real condition. As one commentator put it, the only thing worse than not recognizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, the only thing worse than that is not being aware that you're any of those things. Right In their self-sufficiency, in their comfort, as we sang about, that comfort sings a siren tune. In that comfort, they have become convinced that they have no actual need for God. They didn't write that down in their sermon notes, right? They never like formally acknowledged Laodicea on April 7th, you know, 60 AD. We no longer need God's help. But somewhere along the line, that's what they began to think. That's actually not just what they began to think, it's what they began to believe, and what we believe is what we do. So this is why Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness, because he wants to be clear to them that they might be deceived about their condition and reality, but Jesus is never deceived, right? His word is faithful and true, means it's never wrong. He also says that he is the amen at the beginning of this. He's quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where it says Jesus is the yes and amen. That every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. Meaning not only is Jesus' 
word perfect and accurate, but it's also sure, and it's going to come to pass. He is the guarantee and the enforcer of every promise and every threat that God gives. But the message to them is that their comfort, their self-sufficiency has produced for them nothing of value but only worldliness, pride, and self-reliance. And self-reliance is not necessarily a virtue. Right? We believe, and it's good and godly to be uh, responsible for yourself, that is good, but to be self-reliant in the extreme like this is not good at all. And you and I should take um, heed of this, because I don't know that there's many other cultures in the history of this planet that are as self-reliant, self-sufficient as ours is. We maybe not think about it, because we can think about all the things that are wrong with our culture and, and, and all the things that are wrong with it, there certainly are. But one of the things that's true is we are some of the richest people that have ever been on this planet before. We are some of the most like, self-capable people to ever be on this planet. We can get most of our needs met pretty easily. And so this church in Laodicea has pretty much everything they, they need pretty easily. And so they've begun to set all their hearts on all of these things and all their worldly means instead of on God, which has led them to, begun, to begin to worship all these things instead of to truly worship God. And this temptation is really subtle. Like I said, they never decided that that's how they were going to feel and operate. Just like for us, we never decide that we're going to feel and operate as though we don't need God. We just subtly and slowly get tempted into it. Normally through ease and through comfort, not through discomfort and trial. See, this church, again, um, like the church in Sardis, there's no hint anywhere in here of the fact that they've been like um, troubled by outsiders, Right? There's no like, oh, I know about Jezebel who's teaching something false in your church. There's no, um, watch out for the Nicolaitans. This church has just fallen into this because apparently things have been so easy for them. So Jesus tells them that they need to repent in verse 19. He says to be zealous and repent. He wants them to leave behind the self-sufficiency and the false security that they have grown so accustomed to, both in their personal lives and in their church life together, so they can leave behind the worship of self, and they can actually go to begin uh, to go to worship the source of all creation. That's what Jesus means when he calls himself at the beginning of this, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus um, was not created. Jesus is not um, a created being. He is God himself, which means he is eternal. Um, That's a really important part of our faith. But that word beginning there means source, center, source. That's what Jesus is saying, is you're trusting in all of these things that you think are sturdy, you think they're reliable, you think that they are what you need, and you have completely forgotten about the source and the center of reality. Because that's what sin does for us, is we begin to trust in all these things. It just slowly tempts us to trust more in those things. And so Jesus calls them to this, um, not because he wants them to um, miss out on riches, not because he wants them to miss out on things. We have to understand this. So Jesus calls this church, and he calls us to repent. He's doing it because he's actually kind. He's doing this because he is kind and gracious to us, because Jesus wants to give them true riches, 
Remember that this church would have heard the letter written to Colossians, right? And in that letter, in the very first chapter, there's all these titles for Christ. And one of them is how he is the beginning, the firstborn of all creation, of all created things. And so Jesus is saying, stop trusting and coming to all of this stuff and come to me. He says, I will give you real gold that is tried by fire. Remember that this is a banking city. And he says, you need to stop trusting in all the gold that's in all the vaults of all these banks. It's nothing. You need real gold. You need treasure that is in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. He says, I will give you real clothing. You're a city known for all this great fashion that you have. I'm going to give you real clothing. That's, I'm going to meet your needs and I'm going to do it in a beautiful way. Not only that, I'm going to give you real medicines that you can see. Again, as a city known for its optometry. So Jesus is hitting all of the idols of this culture, and he's saying, none of these are true. What you need is me. You can hear Jesus almost echoing the, the language of Isaiah chapter 55, where God says, come to me, all you who thirst. He says, come all those of you without money, come buy and eat and find in me everything that you need. This right here is in fact the good news of the gospel, right? The good news that we have in Jesus Christ is that hopeless and broke people can come to the God of the universe without cost. We can go right to the God of the whole universe, the beginning, the source of all creation. We can go there even though we are helpless without cost. I didn't say um, broken people, because broken, I don't know, to me it sounds like if we just say we're broken people, it's like we've got some flaws, but we're still sort of okay. We're not broken, we're utterly broke, right? The bank account is completely zero, it's well past zero, it's well in the negatives. That's where we actually are. And Jesus says, come to me, the only thing that it's going to cost you and it's going to cost me, the only thing that it costs us is not money, it's not religious deeds, it's actually just our own pride. It's actually just our own self-reliance and that idol that we have called ourselves. That's the only thing that actually really has to get laid down to come to Christ. Is that recognition of utter need. So today, if you haven't come to Christ, you can come to Him at no cost. There's not a a religious deed that you have to fulfill. It is free. The redemption, the salvation, the reconciliation, every promise that's ever been offered, it's right there in Christ, and it's there free because of what He has done for you. And this is a truth that you and I need to not move on from, right? We come to Christ, we don't just move on as though the goal of the Christian life is to move on from being needy. Right? I think that we are best and we are healthiest, happiest, and most whole when we are actually growing in the recognition of our need for Christ, not in our ability to no longer feel needy. Right? When we no longer feel needy, we are in a, a dangerous place like Laodicea. Because when we no longer feel needy, we will start to slip away. But when we are aware of our need constantly, that drives us to our Savior, and that is where we will find the gold and everything that we need, right? The true riches that we need. 
So Jesus tells them to be zealous and repent. Um, I think that the best way to understand that phrase is that he is telling them to be zealous or passionate. Zeal is a word for passion. He's telling, be passionate about repentance. I want you to be passionate in the direction of repentance. Because zeal by itself, passion by yourself is not necessarily a good thing. Um, in our culture, in 2022, um, it's, it's passion or zeal about anything is just kind of good on its own, right? Whatever feelings we have are necessarily good because they come up from inside us. That's not really true. Um, passion by itself is not good. It has to be passion in a good direction, right? And so God wants, the, he wants more for them than just being led around by their passions for all their worldly things. And he's not just calling them to have emotional rushes of religiosity in their life. He actually wants them to have zeal that is taking them back to Christ. Because that is what will keep you and I from being no longer poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, and naked. And this is one of the reasons that we as a church, we, we've said that we want to bring to this area um, three really distinct things that we see in some ways lacking around here. Um, and that is that churches that are gospel-focused and biblically deep and in Um, deeply connected with one another. And the reason for that is because as you and I are focused on the gospel, we don't move on from it, right? We don't just presume we no longer need to be reminded of the fact that we're sinners saved by amazing grace. If we really stay there and rejoice in it all the time, that's going to fill us up with a natural zeal. But that zeal is going to be directed by the truths that we are rooted in in Scripture. And not only that, but that is actually going to be fuel for the fire to keep on going, right? Those deep truths of the faith, applying yourself and learning God's truths is not just an exercise in your intellect growing. It's trying to find um, even more great truths about what God has done to set you free. And as we are connected to one another, then we are corrected and encouraged and spurred on by one another in a meaningful way so that we don't get to the place that Laodicea is. All of those things keep us reminded of our need. We want to be gospel-focused, biblically deep, and I would say profoundly connected to one another. Profoundly connected to one another. This is why we need God's Word, because it corrects us and it redirects us when our hearts have gone astray. Look at verse uh, 19. Jesus says he's doing all this, right? He, is, he has hammered this church. Like, I, I don't think that um, I would feel bad, probably, um, saying all the things that Jesus says to this church. It could feel harsh, but he gets to say it because he's God. But he says, hold on, those whom I love, I discipline. Those whom I love, I discipline. When Jesus disciplines you or me, when God convicts you or I, he doesn't do it to send us away. He does it to bring us closer. When you or I are convicted about something, it is not from God to send us away into shame. It is to bring us closer to him. To get us out of the empty wells that we have kept on trying to, dr- to try to drink water out of. So even this church that he wants to spit out of his mouth, he loves. With all of their warts, all of their sins, all their idols, he loves. That's an amazing thing. And this is one of the reasons that he gives us the church. I was trying to think this week, how do we stay out of this 
Like, how do we not get to this place? I was drawn to this verse in Hebrews chapter 3. It says that exhort one another today, as long as it, or exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think that verse right there is why, it's just a really quick case in point for why we need, why God gave us the church. Right? This happens both um, on Sundays and it happens throughout the week. Like, as we gather together and we um, worship together, as we do these readings together, as we hear the word preached, as all these things happen, the goal is that we would be constantly encouraged and corrected so that we don't end up in this place. So if me or any of the other pastors of Maranatha or anyone who ever um, speaks from this pulpit, if any of us ever say anything that is difficult, we go to a tough part of Scripture and we preach through it, the goal is not, again, to send us away. The goal is to bring us closer. Because if we don't do that, we will slowly get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's the same thing that singing together and all these things do. But again, that's just one day, and we're supposed to exhort one another as long as it's called today, which is code from uh, the author of Hebrews every single day, um, that we are supposed to do this throughout the week, which is where that being connected to each other throughout the week matters. Right? We don't just gather every morning here in this room and then go about our days. We need to be actually connected with one another because every single day, every single day, your heart and my heart, is going to move in some kind of direction. The temptation of this world and the temptation of sin in us doesn't take breaks, doesn't stop. This hardening that happens is because sin is deceitful. It's not because it's blatant and it has big flashing signs to let you and I know that, that this kind of hardening of heart happens. But this hardening is how Jesus leaves a church. This is how Jesus ends up on the outside of the church and no longer a part of it. Slowly, our self-sufficiency, our idols, our worship of ourselves and our comfort just kind of hardens us into a nice, comfortable living where Jesus doesn't actually need to be found because we no longer feel a need for him to be there. So exhort one another. That's a verse for all of us in this room. Exhort one another every day so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 20 in here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Think about that verse. Think about that verse. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The unpleasant news at the beginning of this, if you think about the visual picture that Jesus paints, is that he is not actually inside this church, right? He's outside knocking on the door. And this is another one of those... um, Verses that maybe uh, you've heard taught differently. I, I don't believe that this verse is talking about Jesus like knocking on the door of somebody's heart in reference to salvation. Um, because if you'll notice, he's knocking on the door of a church, not on the door of a heart. Um, Jesus is not, as one commentator said, um, a homeless beggar destined to knock until someone is just kind enough to let him in. Jesus is knocking on this door because he's the owner of the house. 
Jesus is knocking on this door because he is the one who owns it. Think about all the parables that Jesus told about like a bridegroom going away and coming back. And he's saying, are, will people be attentive? Will people be listening? Or will people be asleep? The danger of self-assuredness and comfort and self-reliance is that we will slowly and on accident, it will not be on purpose, but we will unnoticeably push Jesus out. And it doesn't matter how great things seem to be at the very beginning of a church plan. That danger is there for every single church on this entire planet. The minute that we think we're immune to it is the minute that we are in trouble. The minute that you and I start to think that we have something going on at Maranatha, that we think that because of this thing or that thing and how great this is or that is, that we don't really need to be on our knees and praying to God for Him to bless the work of His kingdom. The minute that we stop doing that is the minute that we have fallen into the same trap. Jesus is knocking on the door and waiting for this church to open it, I believe, to bring them reformation and revival. That's what he wants to do for this church. He's like, let me in and let us restart this thing. Let's restart this from the ground up with people who know their need. You know who God wants to use? People who know that they need him. That's the people that God uses for profound things in this world. People that know their desperate need. And the people who see that desperate need met in Christ. So we, like this church, can have Jesus as a savior and a shepherd, or we can have him as a judge. I think that's the implication to those who don't let him in. So the ones who see their need and repent and go to Christ instead of sin and self, they find the very presence of Jesus, right? They're welcomed in to the presence of Jesus Christ. They're welcomed into the resurrection and eternal life and the right to sit next to him on his throne. Jesus brings you and I into such a close union with himself that we become more than a conqueror just like him. And it can be said that you are going to sit on the throne with Christ. Like, are you kidding me right now? Us? You and me? Like, that should blow our minds that we, if we really know our need, then that verse should absolutely blow our minds as we read it. Me? Like, I'm going to sit on a throne with Christ? The one who should be judged at that throne? The one who should be thrown far away from that throne? He's going to put me on it? Next to himself, he's going to, going back to last week, he's going to write his name on me. As it says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, showed us great love and raised us up to life with Christ. If you continue on in that famous passage, it says that he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Why? Just to show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards sinners in Christ Jesus. Church, you have been shown immeasurable riches of grace. <laughs> immeasurable riches of grace. And it comes from one source. It comes from Christ Jesus. So for you and for me, as we try to live this out, let's be a church where Jesus remains, right? Let's be a church plant where Jesus isn't five years from now on the outside knocking on the door like, hey, wouldn't it be great if I gave you guys some help? And for us to do that, it's really one central 
thing. You and I must remember our constant need, and we need to remember the constant supply of grace in Jesus. You want to be a good Christian, whatever that means. You want to be a good Christian, a good follower of God, somebody that God is pleased with? Be a person that remembers your need and remembers that you can go without money to Christ and find it fulfilled. And when we know this, I think it shows up in two huge ways. This is the first two that came to my mind, I'm sure, this week in a community group. Um, you can think of more. Um, and if you're not in a community group, please join in to a community group. That's, I mean, uh, trying to fulfill. That's why we do it is because we want to fulfill, fulfill verses like Hebrews 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. We want to be in the rhythm of exhorting one another day by day. It shows up for us when we know our need. It shows up in prayer, and it shows up in showing grace to one another. If you don't believe that you need anything, you will stop praying. It really is that easy for us. And so if you're sitting around and you're like, oh, I wonder why this person prays more than me. Are they just holier than me? Are they just better than me? What's going on? It's probably because they know that they need more than you do. And that's, that's hard for me to say because of how constantly I will say that I don't pray as much as I should. And it's just because of how many things I think I can do on my own. And every single one of those prayerless days is actually a rebuke against God, saying, actually, I've got this on my own. But not only that, not only will our need make us be prayerful, people who are ready to pray, right? Not reluctant to pray, but ready to do it. It also means that we are ready to show grace to one another because people who know that they are needy are okay with other needy people. So when somebody, if somebody comes in here, it doesn't matter what day it is, somebody comes in here and they look really needy and they are really needy, the answer for you and me is great. Fantastic. You have, been, you have come to the right place. We are people of need. We put all these things together. If we just think about this sermon series as a whole, whatever the danger is, right? It could be losing our love for God and one another. It could be a lack of discernment and compromise with the world, letting the truth being twisted by the world around us. The trouble could be suffering, persecution, a trial, or, or even riches and the fleeting pleasures of sin and comfort, and how we give in to them, whatever those things are. Even if it's apathy or a self-reliance like this church, that leads to a total forgetfulness of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ and what God is doing. We need to respond with truly rejoicing and centering the gospel. It needs to be truly treasured in our lives. We need to trust in all these trials. We need to trust in the sufficiency of our God and our God's word. does not matter what culture says in any way. We believe we have a sufficient God with his sufficient word that he has given to us. And lastly, we need to have the humility to actually submit ourselves to our Savior. To actually follow him. Not just say, those verses are great for other people to follow. You and I have to actually recognize that our neediness means that we need to follow Christ. If we don't do those things, then this, will be, this church plant will be a great exercise in us building absolutely nothing. It'll be a fantastic time where we accomplish nothing of value for who knows how long. But if we lean on those things, if we stay needy, 
then we will be used by God to build the kingdom in profound ways. Let's pray together. Father God, it is our heart that we would be useful for you in your kingdom. If that's not our heart today, God, because so often we get wrapped up in a million other things, Lord, I pray that you would correct our hearts from that. Show us how uh, pursuing you is better than the empty wells, the shallow wells that we are so accustomed to. Lord, we pray all these things, and we pray above all, God, that you would show us and remind our hearts of the immeasurable riches of the grace that has been shown to us. We give thanks in the name of Jesus, who is the fountain of all this grace. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.